In 2 Kings chapter 5, take your Bibles and turn there. You know, it's interesting how the Bible sometimes can contain so much information and so much application in just a little bit of detail. One of the things I love in studying Scripture is to find the obscure. I love the obscure. I love the little passage that just kind of is in the middle of another passage where you kind of go, wait a second, time out. Let me look at what that's saying. And this is one of those passages in 2 Kings chapter 5. Many times the, the Spirit will insert something in the narrative about a person or about some situation, what they've done, and it, and it seems so minor that if we don't really pay attention as we study, uh, we will kind of miss an important teaching. Now, 2 Kings 5, probably not a text we've been in uh, maybe in the last month. I want to encourage us, uh, and I say this only as an encouragement, as we read and study, it's essential that we don't just run to the familiar passages, to Psalms and Proverbs and, and the Gospels and the Epistles. There, there are times, uh, because we need to know the whole counsel of God, there are times we may need to park in Second Kings for a while. There are, there are times we need to really stretch ourselves and study the book of Isaiah in depth or to, to uh, dissect Jesus' parables. Something like that where we're really getting out of our comfort zone in terms of Scripture because we need to know all of that. And every passage, every passage is designed to teach us. And every passage is designed to encourage us and to strengthen our faith because we focus on the greatness of the Lord and his authority and his love and his grace. So in this text, 2 Kings 5, starting in verse 1, there's a young girl, and the Holy Spirit takes time to tell us about her. Now, she only says 21 words. She only says those words in two sentences, and that's it. We don't know her name. We don't know her age. She's probably very likely uh, a preteen, so maybe 10, 11, 12, something like that. We don't know anything about her family. We don't know where she grew up. We don't know who her friends were. We don't even know what she knew about the Lord. And you'll notice, and it's in verse 2, that the text calls her a literal girl. Now, the literal meaning of those two words in the Hebrew is someone who is small and insignificant. So the Holy Spirit says there's this little girl who everybody saw as small and insignificant, but at some point, even though we know nothing about her, we do know that at some point she had heard about Elisha. And she had maybe some interaction with Elisha. And, and because of that, her words not only influenced somebody in terms of their personal life, but for all eternity, they impact him in terms of his spiritual life. Now let's see the text here. We're just going to read five verses to start. 2 Kings 5.1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master. And he was highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man also was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. 
Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. Now, the setting for this text, and it's important that we know that, is right after the reign of Ahab. Ahab was the most evil king that Israel had ever had. And um, he was right, he, his, his reign was concurrent with the ministry of Elijah. We remember the contest on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. So Ahab and Elijah. Now the prophet who followed Elijah was a man named Elisha. And in 2 Kings 2, when Elijah goes up into heaven, Elisha says, please give me a double portion of the blessing that's on your life. Elijah says, if you see me when I go to heaven, God will do that. And the chariot of fire comes and takes Elijah into heaven, and Elisha sees that, and then he has a double portion of blessing. Now, the Arameans were a nation nearby to Israel, and they had fought Israel three times during Ahab's reign. The third time they won. Now that was because Ahab was evil and wicked and corrupt. And because Israel, under Ahab's reign, continued to worship idols. Even after Mount Carmel and this moment of repentance, Israel went right back to worshiping idols. So Elijah goes to heaven. Elisha becomes the new prophet. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. And uh, the new king in Israel is a man named Jehoram. Jehoram is the, the son of Ahab. Now, I know that's a lot of history, but it's important. Because under Jehoram, he continues to do evil. The nation continues to stumble. And God uses the Arameans to come in and have victory over them. One of the top commanders, you see it here in verse 1, of the nation of Aram was a man named Naaman. Very respected, a wonderful uh, servant, a wonderful leader, a great warrior. But he had one problem in his life, and the problem was that he was a leper. Now, in Aram, they didn't have the laws of purity that Israel did. So in Israel, he would have been a complete outcast. Lepers had to stay to themselves. Whenever they went near somebody, they had to call out, leper coming, leper coming, so people could back up. But in, Ar in Aram, a leper was not unclean. So, so other than the social stigma that Naaman dealt with of being unclean and kind of unpleasant to be around physically, he was allowed to interact with other people. So we've got Nahum, he's a great warrior, he's a leader, he's got leprosy, and during one of the battles with Israel, the Arameans take hostages. One of the hostages, and this is where we're getting to in verse 2, was this little girl. And she goes to the slave market, and Naaman apparently goes to the slave market and says, I want her for the house. So she comes and lives in Naaman's house and serves as a, as a servant to Naaman's wife. Now you see, now why does the Holy Spirit give us that detail? Out of all Scripture, out of all the things that the Spirit of God could talk about, why do we hear about this little girl? Think about the sadness of being taken from her home. 
She probably witnessed her father, maybe both parents being killed in the raid. The, the Arameans came in, and now she's taken away. She's isolated. She's by herself. She was probably um, put in some kind of transport vehicle, and now she's taken to a foreign country and put in a slave market. I mean, that's heady stuff for an 11, 12-year-old girl. Fearful, not knowing what's going to happen, no clue whether she'll be killed or, or abused or, or what her condition is going to be. She just knows that she has no freedom, no rights, no, no anything. And now she's put in the home of a man who's a leper, which according to her law made him physically and spiritually impure. But she's got to be near him every single day. Try to feel that. Try to, try to viscerally take that in, what that would have been like and the uncertainty. And then ask yourself, how would I respond? What would my faith be like if this was me? How would I respond to the people that are keeping me in slavery day after day, even though I'm in their home and it's a nice home, but, but I can't leave? What would my attitude be every single day? How would that attitude impact me? Would I be bitter and angry and resentful? Would I be bold and outspoken and living out my convictions? Would I be unashamed of the gospel and, and talk about the Lord and use opportunities to influence people? Or would I shrink back and be fearful and defeated and, and wounded spiritually, emotionally, and physically? Now think about the circumstances that we live in every day which are nothing like that. And yet, it's still challenging, isn't it, to be open and bold about our faith even when we're free and life is relatively easy. This girl is unashamed in expressing her faith. And if you look at the text, apparently Naaman's wife respected this to the point that she didn't restrain her from talking about it. So when this little, seemingly, quote-unquote, insignificant girl becomes aware, maybe Naaman's wife talked about it, maybe she was upset one day about how Naaman's leprosy was affecting the household. Whatever the case may be, she tells the wife, I know somebody. There's somebody that can help your husband. Look at it again. Let's read verse 3 again. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master, Naaman, were with the prophet who's in Samaria, that's Elisha, because he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, we're going to see a couple spiritual principles this morning, and I'm going to give you the first one because it's very important. No one is insignificant when they trust the Lord and seek to influence others. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your job is. I don't care what your family situation is like. I don't care if you're rich or poor or young or old or, or whatever the case may be. You are not insignificant especially when you trust the Lord and seek to influence other people. Now, there are four aspects to the statement that she makes here, these two sentences, 21 words in verse 3, and they provide a stark contrast to the response that Naaman's going to have in a couple minutes when he's healed. So if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you, like maybe draw a line down the center. And put little girl on one side and Naaman on the other. Because I want to I set up a contrast. We're going to list her four first. And then in a couple minutes we're going to list his responses. Because I want to set up the contrast of differences between her spiritual perspective and Naaman's. And the reason we want to do that 
is because we want to have a little evaluation chart. We want to be able to honestly assess, which side do I live on? Now, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Well, Paul, I I have two of these and two of these I struggle. That's fine. What we're trying to isolate is where do we struggle? How do we overcome that? How do we have a different perspective? Because if we see, ooh, yeah, I'm more on Naaman's side on this one than on the little girls, then we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to help me. I need you to change me. I need this not to be true of my life. Okay? So let's start with the girl. Let's see four approaches that she takes to a tough situation. Notice, first of all, that her statement is full of faith. Her statement is full of faith. She says, oh, if you could just meet Elisha. There's a guy, and he's in Israel, and if you could meet him, he's a prophet of God, and he can do miracles. So if Naaman could just get to Elisha, he would be healed. Now, it's logical to assume at this point that her family had feared the Lord. And they had not only taught her to fear the Lord, but they had openly talked about the power of the Lord through his servants. Now, that was unique because, remember, Israel was worshiping Baal. So there's this little family, this small, seemingly insignificant, average, everyday family that's standing out against the culture, that's, that's worshiping the Lord in their home, that's teaching their kids how to love the Lord and, and teaching them about the power of God through Elisha. And, and they're different. And we're going to be different as believers, aren't we? We're going to be different. And yet that doesn't stop them. And even as a young person, when she's forcibly ripped from her home and taken to another country, and she's a slave, notice here that that her fear of the Lord and her trust in him is completely undeterred. She lets her light shine before men so that they would glorify God. So she says to her master, hey, I know somebody that has the power of God. And Naaman's wife is drawn to the Lord. And Naaman himself believes this, that she's credible, that the Lord is real, that that he's working through Elisha. And listen, this is what bold, courageous faith does. It speaks even to skeptics. And our confidence in the Lord is very, very persuasive. Please hear that this morning, because our culture is messed up. And our confidence in the Lord is going to be persuasive. If people are seeing the boldness of our faith and the radical change in our lives, that we're not ashamed to stand for the Lord and talk about how he's changed us and we've gone from darkness to light. If we're not ashamed of that, that will persuade people. Our culture is so visibly and tangibly driven and yet completely lacking in confidence and peace. Every day when I look at the news, another riot, another demonstration. And that's not, I'm not talking politically here. I'm just talking the underlying lack of peace in our culture. And yet we can come along and say, great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. This is my confidence. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Think about what we just sang. That needs to be true of our lives. Second, would you see that her statement was confident in the Lord's power? She has no doubt whatsoever that Elisha will be able to cure Naaman because she knew that the Lord used Elisha in powerful ways. So Naaman, if you can just get there, you will be healed. Now that sentence really hit me. It's in the middle of verse 3. 
that, that hit me because I questioned as I studied that, and the Spirit, I believe, prompted this in my heart, how often, how often do I really take the Lord at his word with that much certainty? Stop and think about that for a minute. Just take a pause. How often do we take the word of the Lord with absolute unwavering certainty? How often are our prayers kind of really, really hopeful rather than unshakable, free of doubt? How often does our confidence almost surprise us because we're that sure. We're so confident. We're so so convinced both of God's power and of God's gracious willingness to help us that we're just expectant, not arrogant, just expectant. Lord, you're going to work. I, I'm confident. You're a great God, and I trust in you, and you've worked before, and I have no doubt you keep your word, you keep your promises. So, Lord, I'm expecting you're going to work. Just like this little girl, if you'll just get there, God will work. Her words aren't just hopeful, pie in the sky. Hey, Naaman, you should go to Israel and kind of check this out. It might work. See what happens. Just, just, just give it a shot. Nope, there's not a shred of doubt. If you go, you'll be healed. That's it. Third, would you see that her statement shows her humility and selflessness? It's humble and selfless because here's a slave, a young girl without any rights, and she wants the man who's made her a slave to be healed. Look back at the verse for a second. It's almost like a longing. I just feel it in my heart. Oh, Naaman could be healed, but there's only one way that's going to happen. You've got to go see Elisha. I was convicted about this because sometimes when people act as enemies to us and they're mean-spirited and they do damage to our lives and to our reputation, what does our humanity want to do? We want to get revenge, right? If not literally, then, then at least in our minds. We may even pray, Lord, I hope you've never prayed this, but I have. Lord, get them back. Ever prayed that one? I know vengeance is yours, says the Lord, but, you know, let's, let's call up a little bit of that vengeance right now. Can we do that? Can, can, can we get them back? That's an understandable emotional response because we've been hurt or we've been damaged, and it, and it even feels kind of good, but what does Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, and honestly, in our flesh, that's not quite as fun and satisfying. But how we react in the situations like she's in says a lot about our humility. And it reveals our heart for all people to know the Lord because almost without fail, the people that persecute us do not love the Lord. There are exceptions. That's why studying this, this, this little girl's attitude and impact is so important because even though she's a slave and she's held against her will, she's concerned about the people around her. She wants them to know the love and the mercy of God. So she selflessly speaks to Naaman's wife and says, you need to get your husband to Israel to see Elisha. She's, she's, she's open about the goodness of the Lord. And what an example that is for us. That we show love and mercy to every single person we interact with. They may hate us. They may curse us. They may make us angry. But the Lord calls us not to react, not to seek revenge, not to hit back. 
but to love them and to pray for them and to treat them well. Now, we'll only do that if the fourth characteristic is true. Her statement showed her contentment in the Lord. Usually, when we're in a situation that's unfair or we're being treated poorly, it's very easy to become bitter and resentful. But she isn't. That's because her faith and her satisfaction in the Lord allows her not to be consumed with homesickness and not to be angry that she's in this hostage situation and not to be ticked off and, and, and emoting toward Naaman and his wife and treating them badly and cursing them. No, she just shows love and concern and care for them. And even as a little girl, she doesn't see her life as too unimportant to influence other people. Now ask yourself... Do we live with that kind of confidence in the Lord? Because we can and we should. So what will hold us back from that? What will prevent us from living that way? Well, the only things that will hold us back are pride and fear. And those two things go hand in hand. So let's look at our second principle. Second principle is pride and fear will always hold us back from walking with the Lord. Pride and fear will always hold us back from walking with the Lord. When Naaman's wife, look at it, tells him about Elisha, he doesn't dismiss it. That's crazy. This little girl shouldn't even talk to us, let alone give us counsel. But, but he doesn't. He's excited, and he believes her words enough to go to the king and say, I need you to help me get to this prophet that's in Israel. So the king is convinced enough by Naaman's word that he sends Naaman with, with 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes because Naaman was a leper and he wouldn't be able to wash his clothes and purify those on the way. So he'd have to change clothes as he's making the trip. Now this amount of money, notice that just for a second. In verse 5, this is not insignificant. One talent of silver was worth 16 years of salary for the average worker. So he's sending him with 10 talents, which is 160 years of salary. This is millions and millions of dollars. And then 6,000 shekels of gold in today's dollars would be worth $3 million. So he's probably going with, with maybe uh, $17, 18000000 million just to go see Elijah. That's how much the king valued Naaman. And it shows that there was an expectation. We're probably going to have to, to pay the prophet. Like, we're going to have to give him some money. Because if he does this, we're going to have to give him a little gift. And it probably wasn't a little gift. But here's the thing. The Lord's not interested in our money. He's not concerned about that. And Elisha, look at that later. Study it later from verse 15 down to verse 27. See the reaction, the difference between Gehazi's reaction and Elisha's reaction. And the value that we should have on money. So in verses 6 and 7, look at it. Naaman goes to the king of Israel with a note from the Aramean king. He says, I've come here to be healed. And the king of Israel essentially goes nuts. 
he says, why would you think I would be able to heal you? What, what are you doing here? And he starts to suspect a plot. Maybe there's, there's some kind of uh, plot by the Aramean king to kind of precipitate a war. So Elisha, verse 8, here's what the king did. Either somebody told him about it, the Spirit of God told him in his heart. And he sends word to the king, send, send Naaman to me. Now this is where it gets very interesting. Look at verse 9. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, verse 8, sorry, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. Think about the, the show of this. And he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman, verse 11, was furious. He went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, much better than the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now when Naaman shows up at the door, Elisha doesn't go out to meet him. Instead, he sends a messenger to tell Naaman, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be clean. But Naaman's response is, is interesting and actually a little surprising. He's furious. And the reason he's so completely ticked off is he assumed, hey, I thought when I got there that there would be this thing, I've showed up my horses and my chariots, that Elisha would come out, welcome brother, and, and kind of perform some kind of ritual and just wave his hand and pray to God and it would all be done. Now before we look more at the reaction, notice Elisha is willing to help, God is willing to help, and the instructions are shockingly simple. But Naaman, for some reason, is frustrated and insulted and humiliated. So instead of receiving this, he turns in a huff and starts to go home. Now, just, it's just an important little side note here. How often do we stand on the doorstep of the Lord doing a mighty work in our lives, but for some reason, we get irritated and offended and we turn away too early. This can apply to not persevering in prayer, not sticking with it, or getting impatient and, and taking control because our faith is stretched and we don't want to do that, or, or just kind of allowing ourselves to, to, to become annoyed. I'm waiting on you, Lord. I've been praying. You don't seem to be answering. Come on. I got deadlines here. You need to work. And then we kind of say, well, enough already. I can't, I'm going to have to take charge now because God's not, not answering my prayer. And yet we're right at the doorstep of God doing a miraculous, amazing blessing work. See, these feelings and reactions are rooted in these two sins, pride and fear. Here's what pride does. Pride resists faith because faith is selfless. Pride argues with God about the method that he's using. Pride complains about the timing because pride wants things 
its own way. We see that. Look back at verse 11 when Naaman gets angry because the Lord wanted to heal him in a different way than Naaman wanted. So when it doesn't fit his desire, he starts to leave. That's just pride. And then notice what fear does. Fear distorts our perspective. Fear causes us to forget the past. Remember the girl's words? If you get to Israel, Elisha will heal you. And Naaman's wife is like, fantastic. And she tells Naaman, and Naaman's like, fantastic. And he goes to the king, and the king's like, fantastic. And he goes all this way and travels and changes clothes, and he's got millions of dollars. And he shows up at the door, but, but he doesn't want to remember the words of the girl. Fear stares at the obstacles, and it's overwhelmed by the circumstances. That's what fear does. It robs us of joy. And it doubts the future, even though the Lord said he would work. Now, because of Naaman's pride and fear, notice his reactions are exactly the opposite of the girl's. So if you've got your chart, now fill in the right side. Let's see his reactions. First of all, his reaction was full of ingratitude. Ingratitude. Naaman was a man dealing with a condition that even many believers have. It's the disease I call chronic dissatisfaction. The Lord can never do enough. The Lord never does it right. Oh, we don't actually blame him. We don't say to, well, the Lord's horrible. He's just not helping me. We, we wouldn't be bold enough to say that. But, but we carry an a attitude of chronic constant discontentment. And that plagues so many people. And what is it? It's an implicit accusation. Lord, you aren't giving me enough. The underlying statement is, Lord, you're not doing what I want. You're not doing what I want. The timing, the method, come on, Lord. And we don't, again, we don't say this out loud. Maybe we do sometimes. But, but it's just kind of nagging at us. Why does the Lord keep doing this? Why does he keep allowing this? Why doesn't he protect me? Why doesn't he help me? What, 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 uh, uh. We literally need to pray, Lord, don't ever allow my heart to be frustrated with you because I have no right ever be frustrated with you. Now that seems obvious, but I want to tell you, this is one of the enemy's biggest temptations. You need to be frustrated with the Lord. All the way back to Genesis 3. Everything's rooted in Genesis 3. You've got a whole garden. Everything but that one tree. Well, you know what? I'm pretty frustrated because I want to eat of that tree. Oh, the Lord's not being, he's not dealing right with you because he won't give you that tree. And instead of saying, look at this magnificence of what God has given us, we get irritated that there's one tree that we can't have. That's chronic dissatisfaction. And listen, if we knew what the Lord, we knew what was best, we wouldn't need the Lord. But how many do need him this morning? I need him this morning. Oh, I need him so much this morning. Second, notice that Naaman's reaction showed a lack of belief. It's very subtle. But it's in verse 11. He says, I thought Elisha would call on the name of the Lord. Tell me the next word. His God. Not the Lord our God, the Lord who is God. 
In other words, what is he saying? Again, this is very subtle. He's saying he's not my God. I'm just here to take. So I've come to see the Lord, your God, Elisha, hoping that that's going to help me because the little girl told me if I come to you, I'm going to be healed. Listen, if he had fully trusted in the Lord from the moment the girl talked to him about it, he could have sat there in, in uh, Aram and cried out to the God of Israel and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God who controls the wind and the waves. He could have called out to him and be healed there, but he doesn't have confidence. So he shows up. I thought you would call in the name of the Lord your God and you would help me. What a contrast to the young girl who knew the Lord and knew the power of God and knew the Lord would help. Third, would you see that his reaction revealed his arrogance? When Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan, Naaman so proud and so conceited that he says, the Jordan River, really? The rivers in Damascus are far superior to that. Why did I come all this way to wash in some inferior river? Uh, the, listen, I, I'm ticked off. I've been inconvenienced here. I came all this way. I made all this effort. I brought all these people because you told me that there was going to be an answer. And now when I show up, you give me a solution that just doesn't seem very good. Listen, when we feel inconvenienced, it's probably a very good indicator that our pride is in full force. When we think what the Lord is directing us to do, listen carefully now. When we think what the Lord's directing us to do is beneath us, God forgive us of this. We are in deep pride. Well, I don't want to serve in that capacity. I don't want to take on this trial. I don't want to go to that job. I don't want to have to deal with these problems. Lord, come on. I, you can do better than that for me. Oh, we don't say it, but we think it. We think it. And our pride is raging this is beneath me. How dare he allow this to happen? That's exactly what Naaman is saying. But listen, the Lord loves us, and he'll take us through whatever it takes, whether it's a trial or the opposite of what we choose, in order to humble us and keep us dependent. And that breaks Naaman's fourth response. His reaction exposed his sense of entitlement. Oh, he's angry. Look at the word. It's the word furious. In the Hebrew, that means furious. I looked it up. I'm like, I wonder if there's a better word for furious. Nope, it's the word furious. He's hostile. He's ticked off. He's angry. Whatever word you want to use there, that describes him because he feels like he deserves a much more exciting miracle. So when he shows up and Elisha doesn't even come to the door and, 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 and he says, go down and wash in the Jordan, he says, forget it. I'm taking my toys and going home. He's willing to forego healing because he feels so entitled. And in doing that, he forgets the faith of the young girl. 
and he forgets the generosity of the king, and he forgets the evidence of God's power through Elisha, and he forgets God's willingness to be gracious. He's all hot and bothered because it's not being done the way he wants it done. And what a foolish way of thinking. Thankfully, he has friends. They're servants. But like the little girl, they're bold to speak up, and they say, hold on, stop for a second, Naaman before we go all the way back to Aram. If you had come here and Elisha had told you to do something spectacular, like Naaman, call down healing from heaven and God will send rain and it'll wash you and, and you'll be instantly clean. If Elijah had said that, what would you have done? And of course, Naaman has to say, well, I would have done it. And they say, well, then why are you so insulted? that he told you to do something so simple. But see, I don't think that's what ultimately convinced him. I believe he went back to verse 3, and I think he remembered the little girl's convincing faith and her unwavering testimony about Elisha's power. Our words have so much power. Our words have so much value, especially if they're righteous and full of faith. And I believe in that moment, Naaman hearkens back to that little girl, and he thinks of that little 11, 12-year-old Hebrew slave and how excited she was. You need to go find Elisha. And as he's standing there in the door, fuming and full of pride and entitlement, and he hears the words of his servants, he breaks. And it says in the verses that follow, so he went down, verse 14, and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Finally, the pride breaks, and he goes, and he's not only physically cleaned, but from this moment on, he's spiritually cleaned because he says, I'm not going to worship idols anymore. I'm going to worship the Lord. And he goes back to Elisha, and Elisha blesses him. Read it later, starting verse 15. Elisha blesses him and sends him home. And imagine the joy. Imagine, oh, it's so exciting. He walks back in the house, and who's standing there? The little girl. I knew it! I knew it! I, it happened! I'm so excited! This is awesome! Imagine the joy in her. And imagine how Naaman in that moment, saw the power of God. Through her example and through Naaman's two different responses, I believe there's a final spiritual point that we really need to accept this morning, and that is that we need to see the hand of the Lord in the simple things. Often, we only get excited about something significant that the Lord does. We only pray really boldly for big miracles. Lord, rescue me from this financial situation. Lord, please, I need a job. I can't find work. Lord, uh, we have a major health issue. We need you to move in miraculous ways. We, we pray that way, and that's wonderful. But faith, I believe, is most powerful when it shows in everyday dependence and confidence. Don't stop praying for the big things, but love and trust the Lord in the simple things. That daily praise, 
that daily gratitude when the devil tries to breed dissatisfaction and discontentment. Nope, not going there. The Lord is gracious. And he had fresh mercy from me this morning. Great is his faithfulness. Oh, I'm going to study his word. I'm going I'm to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because the Lord has shown through this little girl that in everyday situations, he can use me. If I'll be confident and trust him and stand for my convictions, he will open up doors where just two sentences, just 21 words can literally change a life. And tell me, tell me, tell me that this is not miraculous. Tell me that the simplicity of her obedience and her faith is not miraculous. So church, here's the challenge and then we're going to pray. We need to be faithful. Faithful means full of faith. And it also means being content in standing for him and serving him. Just, just be faithful. Wow, that's not very exciting. That's not very significant. Listen, I'm sure at the time, the girl didn't feel very significant. And yet, here we are 5,000 years later in Wisconsin talking about the impact that she had on people. The Lord will work in powerful ways if we will just be faithful and we will be bold for him. Let's ask him to help us.